Let's join again at the throne of grace. Father in heaven, as we come to take up this theme of what happens to a true believer after passing from this world, we pray that you would take these words and uh, comfort uh, all of us uh, who are um, uh, counting Mary Barker as our friend, as our sister in the Lord. Uh, We pray particularly uh, for Joy, for Allison, uh, for uh, Pastor Bob, and for Jonathan. Uh, We think of uh, Phil and Rachel and Tim, their spouses. We think of the great-grandchildren. And we think, Lord, as well of uh, any in our midst here this morning of uh, years to begin to think about what happens uh, when someone dies and what happens particularly when a believer dies. We pray that you would uh, take these truths of the scripture and encourage us as believers. And if we sit here this morning or under the sound of my voice and not yet confident that Uh, this one or that one is in a state of grace, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would take these words and own them uh, with converting power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I first would have met Mary Barker back in 1978 when Nancy and I were working with the young people of Trinity Church, and two of the young people in that group were uh, Joy and Allison. And in God's kindness, there were a number of homes, uh, particularly on Sunday evenings, that were open to us as the Uh, teachers, leaders of that youth group, along with uh, these young people to meet in the various homes. And uh, Mary Barker, Frank and Mary were very much a part of that uh, rotation. Uh, There was no thought in my mind 45 years ago that uh, down to this time that I might be uh, Mary Barker's pastor and certainly no thought that we would be involved in something of this vigil where she is right at uh, the door of death. But um, we have seen her have these uh, multiple strokes and the more severe bleeding In the brain on early Thursday morning, the family thought that she would be passing on Thursday, and then the thought she would be passing on Friday, then she would be passing uh, on uh, Saturday. But we see that um, our beginning and our end is up to the sovereign prerogative of God. Um, But we come this morning mindful that she is unconscious, she is never likely uh, to have any more conscious uh, thoughts in this world, or so the medical authorities tell us. I want us to be thinking this morning in terms of what happens at the moment that a true believer in Jesus Christ, when that soul leaves the body and the soul returns to the God who sent it and the body is left there lifeless. And as we come to take up this theme, it's not just a a matter of a Bible trivia kind of interest in these details, but we are aware that most likely, barring the return of Christ in our lifetimes, that each one of us is going to die. And we want these truths to be fixed in our minds to assist us in that great time of transition. So first of all, as you see on your handout sheet, the two foundational principles 
concerning death. Before we start talking uh, about what happens at the moment of death, let's review and remind ourselves of what the Bible has to say. First of all, A, on the nature and constitution of human beings. We are created by God with two parts, with two entities. We are body and soul. The body is that which is touchable, which is hurtable, which is killable. Uh, Your body enables your eyes to see me and your bodily ears the ability to hear and to send the words that I speak to your brain for processing. That man was two parts. Listen to Genesis 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And for the Hebrews, the same word for breath is their word for spirit. It speaks here of there was that initially inanimate body that God then breathed life into. But then as well, man also has a soul or is a never-dying soul. And there are some passages in the Bible that require us to understand that there are these two parts to us. One of these is from our Savior, Matthew 10 and verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So there is something of the twofold nature and constitution of each one of us. We are not simply body. We are a body-soul entity. There are those who cannot kill the soul. They cannot reach to that immaterial part of our being. Secondly, B, the separation in death for human beings. There is at death this radical separation, this radical unmaking of a man or a woman. And for the first time since we were conceived in our mother's womb, and there was that body part, that embryo that was there, and also the soul that was there, for the first time as we die... There is the unmaking of man. There is the removal of the body from the soul. We read in our scripture reading from Ecclesiastes 12, where we are urged to remember our creator in the days of our youth before we progress to old age and when death occurs. There in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. The dust or the physical part of our bodies, the physical part of us that was made, stays here on earth, goes into the ground, laid in the tomb. And the next part of verse 7, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. James reflects on this two-part in our humanity James 2 and verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And everybody reading James has a sense of what he is saying. Death is that separation of the soul into the body. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, as he hung there, Late on his time on the cross, he prayed to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were able to secure his lifeless body and lay it into Joseph's tomb. 
But his soul, his spirit, went to the Father to whom he committed that spirit. And Stephen, as he died, according to Acts 7 and verse 59, said, Similarly, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It is not the soul that falls to sleep, but that deceased individual, that body that is left, as you look at them, they are quiet, they are lifeless, and especially as they die in their sleep, they simply look like they are sleeping. But there are two things that we need to know about this radical separation. The first is this. Death is unnatural. There are many that try to tell us that death is the most natural thing in the world. It's been around for millions and millions of years, and death is just a part of the ordinary process of life, and you just need to cope with it. You just need to deal with it as a natural part of everyone's existence. No, death is not natural. Death is very unnatural. Death is God coming and saying to Adam that because you have sinned, there is this separation of your body and soul that is going to come. Listen to the words of Mr. Venema. Contrary to many myths about death, that death is a natural part of life, that it marks a natural process, there's a natural dignity in dying well. In contrast to this, the Bible paints its picture of death in the most stark and sobering of colors. Nowhere in the Bible is death regarded as something natural that can be easily domesticated or treated as a part of life. No encouragement is given to us in the Bible to minimize the terror and the fearfulness of death except we be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is called our last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15.26. The biblical understanding of death begins with the fall into sin. Death is the, the divinely appointed punishment of man's disobedience. It's a part of the stipulation that warned Adam, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam, who was made a living soul by the inbreathing of his creator, became liable to death through his act of disobedience, a liability that now falls on all that he represented as their covenant head. One of the more prominent passages on sin and death is Romans 5.12, where sin and the death that follows is linked in the strongest of terms. Death is unnatural. The second thing that we need to know about death is that death is temporary in its effects on the Christian. That separation of body and soul is only temporary. It only lasts until the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ, the Son of Man, comes on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, God will be reversing the effects of death and will be rejoining those souls that are in heaven with those bodies that have been laid in the grave. First, Corinthians, First Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, we are told of this glorious coming of Christ and told that the dead in Christ will rise first. 
the spirits of believers come with Christ and then their bodies will be gathered together as Jesus said in John 5, 28, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So if we are to think biblically about death and that which immediately happens to the believer at the point of his or her individual death, we must keep these two truths in mind. The nature and constitution of human beings at creation, body, soul, entities. The separation in death in the case of human beings where the soul departs and goes back to the God who gave it and the body is put into the grave. Now, secondly, this morning, I want us to come to four wonderful realities, four wonderful realities in the immediate sequel to death. By sequel, we mean the follow-up, the continuation of the story, something that follows something else. We have death. What happens immediately after that death? What happens when the soul departs and when that body is still warm at the instant of death? What happens? Well, we're going to be talking here almost exclusively on the intermediate state. From the point that we die until the glorious return of Christ when he raises our bodies and joins us body and soul together and that for the final state, that for all of eternity. But these wonderful realities are wonderful realities only if we individually believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is our question. What happens to one at the moment of death? At death, Mary Barker immediately will experience these four items. First of all, A. The individual who dies immediately is made perfect in moral likeness to Christ. This is the great goal of redemption. We are told that even back in the counsels of God, when he foreknew it was to the end, his foreknowing, his foreloving, led to him predestining that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. So in eternity, this was what God was planning. And then it is that he calls us and he justifies us and he glorifies us. Romans 8 and 29 through 31 speaks of this. And what is it to be glorified? Well, to be glorified will be sinless souls inhabiting deathless bodies. That comes to us from J.I. Packer. It's very likely that most of us, all of us, will receive our glorification in two stages unless we are privileged to be living at the glorious return of the Lord Jesus. And at death, the soul is glorified. And then at the glorious return of Christ, our bodies will be glorified. Now for Enoch and Moses and Elijah and those who are alive at the time when Christ comes again, they'll get their glorification all at once. Both the soul and the body will be glorified at the same time. Listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 
and verse 15, where he's talking about that glorious return of Christ, but it has an implication for us as believers considering our death here and now. For we say to you, 4.15, by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, those bodies that are asleep. For the Lord will himself descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What? is going to happen to you as a believer when you die. Well, we get a sense of this as we look in Hebrews chapter 12 to see something of heaven. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You haven't come to an old covenant dealings with God, but you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 23 of Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion. And I can't resist to tell you that it is a perfect tense, something that has been done in the past. You have believed, and therefore you have come, and the results of that having come to God will stay with you. Now notice Hebrews 12 and verse 23. What have we come to as believers? to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And guess what? Another perfect tense. Made perfect, made complete, brought to moral perfection, something that according to the text has happened in the past, as these have died and gone on to heaven, and they will always stay in that same condition. So here is a concentration of God's sanctifying grace that comes at the very end of our physical existence. If you are a believer in Christ, then sometime in your past, whether as a three-year-old or a 12-year-old, an 18-year-old or a 48-year-old, you have believed in Christ. And there's been a change to your life and there has been an increasing moral conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. However, A lifetime of ongoing sanctification is not going to compare to that which happens at the moment of death. You can take the lifetime of sanctification and fit it into a thimble, and what God gives us is an ocean of sanctifying grace there at the beginning of that new existence after death. Never again will the glorified spirit of Mary know the grief of conviction for a fault. The Holy Spirit tells us plainly it is the spirits of just men made perfect. They are absolutely and unreservedly conformed to the highest demands of the law of God. Pastor Martin says, when our believing loved ones breathe their last, that soul will be released, and now I'm going to adapt it to Mary, and Mary will become fully at home psychologically, morally, and spiritually in the presence of God without a twinge of discomfort. So even John the Apostle falling on his face as a dead man before the glorified Christ, John was still in this life. 
John was not ready for that heavenly existence. But when the believer dies, there is such a transformation of character that we are enabled to be comfortable in the presence of God. It helps us to consider that our loved one gains more at death, if they're a believer, than what we lose. We lose them. We lose them in all the significance of what they were to us as a loving friend, advisor, grandmother, mother. But what she gets is this ocean of sanctification. And that helps comfort us when we see what they have gotten is much larger than what we have lost. What happens at death? Mary Barker, the believer in Christ, will be immediately made perfect. Secondly, Mary Barker would be immediately brought into the presence of Christ. This is the plain message of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 and 8. While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There's no time intervening. If you step away from the body, the tent of this body, using Paul's figure, once we step away from the tent of our human body, at that moment we are present with the Lord. We're either present in our tent or we are present with the Lord. Philippians 1 in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23, For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul is actually saying something like, it's very far better, as he piles up the modifiers, but words could not be plainer. It is better to die as a believer. The level that we come to is so much higher, it is better. And one of the parts of being better is that we, when we are absent from our tent, we will be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul desires to depart and to be with the Lord Jesus, except when he thinks of what he as an apostle can do for the good of the church until it's really God's time to take him home. So Paul is saying, I want to die, I want to depart from this world because I get more of Christ in death than I can ever get here on earth. I can have those little seasons when I sense God is close to me, but when I depart from my tent, I will be there immediately in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus prayed for this. John 17, 24, Father, I desire, I will, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory. I will that they be with me. And the time for Mary is very soon for her to see the fulfillment and to experience this. Spurgeon writes, Ah, believer, you would keep them with you, but the Savior would have them with him. Now I ask you, dear believer, whose will will win the day? When we feel the crushing loneliness of the loss of a loved one, the Lord wants us to think on the truth that he desires this believer to be with him so that the believer may behold 
his glory. The believer in death gets so much in Christ, but there is more to come even at the ultimate restoration day when Christ comes again. What happens at death? Mary Barker, the believer, immediately will be made perfect. Secondly, B is brought into the immediate presence of Christ. And thirdly, C immediately joins the perfect fellowship of God's family. She then will join the true church, the true church without any blemishes, without any false sons or daughters in the circle. Everyone is born individually. We're all face our death individually. And God's salvation, it is as individuals we we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And though the Bible sets out this appropriate individualism as we hear, as we repent, as we believe, as we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, yet there is this corporate idea that we as Christians are to have in our minds. The bride of Christ speaks of the corporate people of God. There is a new city of God. There is this new humanity in God's presence. And 1 Thessalonians 4, we've already read it, verse 17, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's not just me. It's just not I. It is I along with all of my believing friends, believers who have died and been buried on land and sea, believers from all sorts of backgrounds and denominations who are plucked out of this world at the glorious return of Christ. It is every believer who has ever lived on the earth is a part of the we. It's a broad, broad we. Heaven is a perfect togetherness. Sometimes the advice is given, tongue-in-cheek, that when you find the perfect church on earth, please do not join it. Because you joining it is going to ruin its perfection. But here is the wonder of heaven. You and I will finally find the perfect church. And we need not fear that by us joining it, that we are going to bring our present imperfections into it. We know something of this. We tend to speak in terms of those occasions when our fellowship, when our interaction with believers is so loving and it's so intense and we feel this this bond together and we say, well, that was a little bit of heaven on earth. And that's an imperfect believer myself interacting with other imperfect believers. What will it be like when all within the church of Christ are absolutely perfect? At death, believers are gathered into the company of perfected spirits in the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. Christ. We can read biographies and hear of those worthies that have gone before us, and our hearts go out in love to them, and sometimes we think, I'd like to spend some time with this one, that one, or in heaven. Sometimes our introduction by way of prayer letters to individual, our hearts go out to them and we already begin to love them and want to get to know them better. Yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, 
and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Mary Barker, the believer, will immediately be made perfect, will be brought into the presence of Christ, and joins the perfect fellowship of Christ. And now, fourthly, D, immediately experiences the promised rest of Christ. There's a passage there in Revelation 14, verse 12, that says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead, the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and his hand in his hand a sharp sickle. You remember how Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's right for us to underscore the evangelistic thrust there. You know that you are not at peace with God. You believe in Jesus Christ, and I will give you rest. But still, in this world, there is a burden, even as believers. And we are promised, as we die, as our spirits, our souls are taken away, that we will be experiencing rest in a much higher level. The Christian life is portrayed as a marathon race. Sometimes it is portrayed as an agonizing of a wrestler and a match that is going on and on. Paul speaks of being in this tent. We groan, being burdened. But what is the experience of the believer whose soul departs the body? It is that their spirit lives, leaves this theater of all our remaining labor all the remaining burdens of life, all the strivings, all the struggling aspects of the Christian life, and they enter into rest. One servant of God described it in this way. But rest too may be rest above all. Here, responsibilities and temptation. Here, harassment by demonic forces, persecution by the world, disappointment by friends. Here, relentless pressure causing us to live at the very edge of our resources and at the very edge of our endurance. But there, rest. The battle is over. The victory is won. The toil is past. No more the burden of unfinished work or the frustration of our inbuilt limitations. No sin to mortify. No self to crucify. No pain to face. No enemy to fear. It's rest. It's a rest that is not just freedom from our burdens, but it is a rest that leads us to be sharing in the blessedness of God so that in the very depth of our being, there is joy, contentment, fulfillment, a total shalom in the Hebrew concept, a sense of sheer well-being. Every need is met, every longing is fulfilled, every goal is achieved, every sense is satisfied. We see him. He is with us. He holds us and hugs us and whispers, this is forever. Rest. What do we know about our lives beyond the grave when we pass? We will be made perfect in moral likeness to Christ. We will be brought into the presence of Christ. We will join the perfect fellowship of God's family. We will experience the promised rest of Christ. And now Roman numeral three, 
closing applications from the immediate sequel to death. And the first is, we are victors. We are victors over the last enemy. We do not deny that the Bible calls it an enemy, that there is a struggle, that there is a broad and well-based fear of death. It is unnatural. But while it is called the last enemy, it is cruel. And often in death, there can be a lingering when the body is feeding on itself in the final days. But there is victory over death for the believer. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is saying, all things are yours in Christ, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. Even death belongs to you. Or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Death is mine in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death becomes the door through which I know a moral transformation that I've not known in all of my years here. Death becomes the door into the immediate presence of Christ where I leave my little tent and I'm in the immediate presence of Christ where I enjoy perfect fellowship and I have a promised rest. Paul writes in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on to say we are killed all day long. And we can ask ourselves and not be afraid of the question, what is the worst possible thing that can happen to us as believers? And for some of us, we may say that the worst thing that can happen to us is that we are martyred for our faith. We are put to death in some painful and some sort of shameful way. And and Paul is anticipating that. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels put the top of the list. That death is not going to be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. There's an amazing statement made by Jesus, a statement where it seems he was intentionally being provocative with his words. Most assuredly, I say to you, John 8, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And the Jews jumped on that. What do you mean? You never see death. Because we are in union with Jesus Christ, because God's wrath for us for our sins, God's wrath in death to us has fallen on the Lord Jesus at the cross, we will never experience death as the absolute punishment for our sins. And I believe that's what our Lord is saying. You're going to go through death, yes. But you're going to go through that rough door of of death and be wonderfully transformed and be in the presence of Jesus Christ and be in the midst of the bride of Christ and be at rest. But you will never experience death as pure punishment for your sin or for Adam's sin. Secondly, B, what do we learn? We are victors over the last enemy through Christ. We are victors over the last enemy through Christ. If you're not a true believer, then you ought to be afraid 
of death. The experience described in Hebrews 2.15 and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. If you're not a Christian, it only makes sense to be afraid of death. Because then you will experience death as the pure punishment for your sin and for Adam's sin. But the blessed child of God does not fear even though he walks in the valley of the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that at death, your destiny is unchangeably fixed. It's irreversible. It is appointed to men to die once, but after this, the judgment. As death leaves you, so the judgment finds you. As the judgment finds you, eternity will hold you. You may be a little bit bothered that I'm even talking about death. You don't want to be troubled this morning with any thoughts about death. And you're, you're very comfortable with your life. Well, if God gives you a deathbed experience, are you going to be comfortable on that deathbed knowing that you have sin to account for once you pass to the other side of that door of death? Then there will be no place to hide and every idle word, every immoral thought, every dishonest relationship, every violation of the law of God will be there on the mind of God. But I invite you to imagine yourself on your deathbed So frail that you're unable to walk. Not only can you not walk, you're so weak that it's a strain to open your eyelid. And there is an inability to even move the tongue. And if you could move the tongue, there's already been a breakdown between the brain and the tongue that you couldn't really speak. That's what it's like to die. But if you're not yet a believer, I invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust that as Christ died on the cross, all of your sins went to him and all of his merit comes to you. Many years ago, there was a nine-year-old girl dying in Great Britain. And this little girl knew that she was dying. She was a believer, and she told her believing aunt, when I am dead, I should like the pastor, Mr. Griffin, to preach a sermon to children to seek to persuade them to trust in the Lord Jesus, to love him, to obey their parents, not to tell lies, but to think about dying and going to heaven. I've been thinking about what texts I should like the pastor to preach from at my funeral. 2 Kings 4 talks about the Shunammite woman whose son dies and Elisha is used to raise the boy. Auntie, you are the Shunammite. Pastor Griffin is the prophet and I am the Shunammite's child. When I am dead, I dare say, Auntie, you will be grieved, though you need not be. The prophet will come to see you and when he asks, how is it with the child, then you may say, it is well. I am sure that it will be well with me because I shall be in heaven singing the praises of God and you ought to think it well too. Pastor Griffin accordingly fulfilled the wish of the nine-year-old child. 
What a wonderful gift that you children could give your parents to so believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to so believe to have the comfort to speak to your parents, to speak to others and say, I know because of the Bible that when I die, it will be well. I close with Jesus' words in John 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's pray. Father, we do not have one chapter in the Bible that contains everything that we as believers would want to know about death. And yet we find that as we page through your scriptures, that there is a great deal that you make plain There are a number of these plain statements about what happens to us as believers. And we pray, our God, that you would help each of us to prepare for that deathbed if you give us one. But some of us are very likely to die suddenly without any warning. So we pray, our God, that you would help us all to be ready, even from this moment, by believing on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray for Mary. We ask that you'll take her on through that rough door of death. We pray that you would not allow her to be disturbed or distressed in these final hours. We pray, our God, that you would be the God of all comforts to Joy, to Allison, to the grandchildren. And we pray, our God, that it would be a tremendous comfort to know that what Mary is gaining is much greater than what we are losing. Not that we don't love her, not that we don't deeply appreciate her testimony and her years of service, but we see that there is this tremendously large benefit that she is receiving as a believer, and we would not take that from her. Father, bless this word to each of our hearts. May we grow strong as Christians and may just even the, uh, the wondrous thought of what happens at death may be a help to us in turning away from sin, in seeking to uh, minister your gospel to those around us and for those who are not believers. Bring them to rest on your son. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.